Welcome to the Truth CSGO podcast, episode 64. Today we are talking Jordan B. Peterson and Counter-Strike. I've had quite a few listeners asking me to give my views on said Peterson. <laughs> and we're going to start with some news, Blast Pro Series, Sao Paulo, WSG, and then we're going to get into the shank of the Peterson episode. Hey guys, this is Electro. Hey guys, I'm Guardian. This is Daps. This is Nico. This is Nifty. This is Chris J. This is Ferry. Code Zero. Flusher. Oh, this is Kerrigan. Are you listening to the truth? The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. Are we rushing in or are we going sneaky beaky like? All right, so uh, there's a ton of news, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to race through it because there's so much to talk about in terms of the uh, main event of this podcast. And to be honest with you, I'm freaking tired. I've been working 14-hour days, and I don't know if I'm going to last too long. So let's smash into it. Blast Pro Series Sao Paulo finished last night. It was won by Australis in a grand final against Liquid. Device was named the MVP. In what is by now a very classic result, Liquid put up a good showing in the first map and then completely ran out of steam in the following two. Uh, basically, deja vu in the best way possible for Australia's fans. Now, the most notable defeats of this tournament were MIBR, who had five straight losses in front of the home crowd and looked completely out of their depth, and FaZe, who are at this point basically a shell of their former selves. I actually have a lot to say about Blast Pro, including ideas for the format, and also specific ideas and perhaps a little rant about Scrawny and Launders. But we'll get to that in a future episode. We'll move on to WSG, because that happened last week. That was the World Electronic Sports Games run by Alibaba in Chongqing, in China. That was won by Windigo. They beat uh, Ago in the finals. They netted themselves $500,000. That was a bit of a surprise result off the back of some incredible performances by players such as Ships, who won the MVP, and of course Poison, who we've been looking at for a while on this podcast. This was very well deserved. They beat MIBR and G2 on the way. If you didn't manage to catch any of these matches, I would Google the POV of Ships from his game against G2 on Overpass, where he had a 2.59 rating. Now, one of the notable losses or, I guess, losers in this tournament was Fnatic, who, despite having won this tournament last year, completely defecated uh, in their beds in this tournament this year. It should also be noted in a thrilling spill of irony, considering my comments last week about giving WESG more of a serious chance, that uh, match-fixing allegations have come to the fore regarding a match between Enzo and Five Power. Five Power we've spoken about several times on this podcast. They actually had all of the bets on their match suspended and refunded by one of the biggest online bettors. Uh, what were they called? What was the betting company called? I think they were called Pinnacle. This is evidently due to some suspicions of match fixing going on. This is at a $860,000, $875,000, tournament. So all of that uh, urging that I did of you last week to take Chinese uh, Counter-Strike seriously and give it more of a chance has completely backfired and left me with egg on my face. So that's a bit of a disaster. Let's move on to some of the roster changes and we're going to smash through these like we are Pepsi Man incarnate. CyberZen, the Chinese team, are now known as Panda uh, after having been bought by new owners. Draken 
is standing in for Dennis on NIP. Dennis is taking a break. Jaken previously was in NIP, then went to Fnatic and has been in the wilderness for some time now. But uh, he's back and apparently he's under contract for the rest of the year. One presumes Dennis will do a bunch of hunting and then announce his retirement or come back for a lesser team. His stats have been pretty dismal after taking over the support role on NIP. Barber has retired from competitive play. Barber has been in the scene for 10 years apparently you probably know him as a former epsilon and recent existence galaxy player he had some success with the latter team last year at dreamhack winter moving uh, back to france 3d max players have left the organization apparently because the org couldn't make good and some some promises that they made 3d max were actually posting some good results last year they were ranking 24th at their highest moment but they did lose jacks and lucky at certain points and have died in the butt ever since and now have decided to dissolve their CSGO team. It has also become official that Mouse Sports have brought in Frozen, Carrigan and Watsik. We talked about this rumor last week and it has now been confirmed. They've been playing their first games online and looking pretty similar to FaZe's first showings uh, once they got uh, Nico and Olaf Meister. Uh, in other regards, in other, in other words, quite puggy, quite confident and very skilled. Rops in particular seems to have been unleashed somewhat and regarding the uh, ex-Mouse Sports players Oscar and Stico, they are still out in the cold, although Stico has since been standing in for Michael Ailey's no chance. Gambit, back in the CIS pond, have released Bondic and Blade and regarding NA, Fugly, Android and Som have joined Envy. They've been replacing Cutler and Drone. And uh, if you recall, Envy lost to Semphis last year and met, uh, didn't manage to sign Carrigan after he helped them with the miners. Rambo has finally been confirmed as the Cloud9 coach. I guess he did okay in his little trial period. We've talked about him previously. And Rogue, the other North American team uh, in this week's news, have completely dissolved their CSGO team. This seemed to have been precipitated by Sick, who has moved to complexity. And MSL and Danish Nico have been poached by Optic, or at least are in very firm talks to jump ship. Now, the former member Vice has also joined Cloud9. As of yesterday, uh, despite being rumored to be in talks with Config and Yugi, that is Cloud9, uh, it doesn't look like those moves are going to happen. Config and Yugi were, of course, uh, would, of course, have been coming over from Optic. Uh, for those who are Cloud9 fans, it looks like uh, they might be returning a little bit more to their NA roots, but also that Kiyoshima might be staying a little bit longer than we expected. Hiko is, of course, now Augless Hiko uh, of Rogue and uh, previous Liquid fame, which is a shame. And finally, in regards to the Turkish team Space Soldiers, or ex-Space Soldiers, they've been known for a while, uh, they have lost a yet another member uh, of the original team, Major. He is the part of the team in a very emotional twit longer, leaving the remnants of that squad in tatters. So we have done all the news for this week, and let's get on to George. Jordan Peterson and CSGO. All right, so this is where things slow down a little bit. Uh, now, basically, Jordan Peterson came up on this podcast a couple of times since it began, mid-2017, and I did manage to excise all mentions of him. I think that one of the first was when Dust, a.k.a. Dust Moret, came on this podcast for an interview, and uh, I had... Re- had realized that recently when I was just doing a little bit of research on the old Dustin uh, that he had subscribed to Jordan Peterson's channel and when I spoke to him about it he mentioned that he'd simply done it because he'd seen Thorin do it and so we talked a bit about it but I took it out and I've taken it out of other podcasts since 
for several reasons. Now, listener Devon sent me an email uh, last week wondering whether speaking publicly on Peterson at this point is a sensitive topic with low reward at the cost of painting myself into a corner, quote unquote. Uh, he surmised that this was because I had friends at Gimlet Media. Well, uh, this may be the case for some. However, I do this podcast completely anonymously and even some of my closest friends I know uh, do not know that I do it and or do not listen because basically none of my really close friends are into uh, Counter-Strike. So I actually have no fear of what Devin spelled out. Uh, Perhaps it would Perhaps I would be afraid if I was anonymous, but but I don't think I do. I, I would. Um, my closest friends, I think I actually share pretty pretty strong opinions with. But actually, the reason I avoided speaking about Jordan Peterson and, and took him out of this podcast in previous episodes was basically for fear of populism. Um, and to explain that, I was basically obsessed with Daft Punk when I was a kid. Uh, and when they sort of became bigger than the Beatles, because uh, they were the biggest thing at, some, at one point, I grew really jealous because I wanted them all to myself. Um, it's the it's the it's it's the old you know I I knew that band before they were famous type thing. What initially attracted you to something is often the feeling of knowing that you know something others don't, or that you found something that others haven't yet found, uh, and it kind of makes you feel special. And then when other people do find out, you kind of cease to be interested in them because they feel less special. So it's an ego thing. I glommed on to Jordan Peterson pretty early on in terms of his little um I think I think I found out about him just before his uh his controversy controversy with the Canadian free speech laws. Partly because I was doing therapy at the time my therapist knew about him and partly because I also did a lot of comparative mythology at university and that's where his basically his main sort of uh, ideas come from so we're going to talk about that in a moment but um i also thought i didn't really want to talk about him because he's had enough publicity he's not the messiah that some people seem to think and it's a little bit controversial as devon pointed out and i'm not so big on controversy on this podcast i'm not big on uh getting too critical about social issues in general i'm kind of more about trying to help you guys work stuff out that i'm working through uh, when it comes to you know things outside CSGO. And despite having listened to his podcast and done his authoring course, uh, there's a lot about his followers that I find actually quite cringy and just as idiotic as the fanatical left and right that he criticizes. And I think any guide or guru or viewpoint when you take it to its extreme or, or you subscribe to it sort of literally word for word or as Joseph Campbell used to use... I used to say you concretize the abstracts there, then uh, it becomes dogmatic and inflexible. And that's kind of why I'm agnostic. I've pointed out this podcast before. I'm not an atheist. Uh, the only rational response, I think, to an uncertain world is uncertainty. And this podcast hopes to make you uncertain. After all, this is the only podcast that openly professes to love CSGO and yet has repeatedly made a case for not playing it, not playing it at all, which I think we may actually do by the end of this podcast and we'll get to it later. Um, but anyway... I think the reason that I decided to actually change my tack on this is because I finally have something I, I need to kind of work out. And if you haven't realized by now, I use this podcast generally as a kind of way of working out how I feel about some things because it's very difficult to 
sometimes talk through with even even your closest friends uh, some sort of issue in a way that that allows you to kind of work out how you feel about it. And some people write journals and some people leave themselves voice memos. Uh, my podcast is a way of doing it. I have to do some research. I have to write up some notes and I have to come to a conclusion. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of a pointless episode for you guys. So that's one of the reasons I thought it, it was time to do it. Um, and it was precipitated because in the last couple of months, I've been on dates with girls, specifically younger girls uh, who brought up how poisonous they thought Jordan Peterson was and how bored they were by hearing from guys about Jordan Peterson. And also in that same time in the last six months, I've heard from old female friends, like girls, I, I, women, I guess, who I've really respected, uh, been very close friends with, um, smart women, um, about how dangerous they thought Jordan Peterson's ideas were, specifically for young men. This has made me think a lot. Uh, and in some ways, and I'll relate some of those dating stories a little bit later on, but in some ways, uh, perhaps as Devin was hinting at in his email to me, it's maybe quite apprehensive uh, in that, and, I, and I'm sure some of you listeners out there might have this feeling too. You start to go, well, like, am I missing something about Peterson? If there's so many people who are equating him, who are equating him with bad things, for instance, we just saw his books uh, taken off the shelf or his book taken off the shelf in New Zealand recently after the Christchurch massacre. Um, it seems so bizarre if you've read his book for that to have been the case and you start to maybe there's a little voice that makes you doubt yourself am i actually polarized the same way as i see these other groups being um and i just don't know it now i used to identify as left i grew up in a very leftist household we had refugees come and stay with us uh once they got out of detention detention centers my my aunt was a psychiatric nurse at several refugee centers my mother worked for refugees uh i voted greens my whole life and yet as I'm sure some of you have, uh, have experienced, I feel increasingly less uh, able to identify with, with the left. Um, and so, as I said, the little voice comes into my head. Am I being willfully ignorant of some sort of truth? Um, and in actual fact, sometimes the way people read into Jordan Peterson's statements or take them out of context or bring up stuff that I find less appealing reminds me of the way peaceful Muslims defend Islam. Uh, Islam is a religion of peace, they say, and the people who, who, who use the Quran as an excuse for violence are either reading it the wrong way or reading what they want into it. And this is a very blunt analogy, of course, but as we've seen Peterson become a quasi-religious figure, I feel like the talk becomes less nuanced and more vindictive in the same way that inflammatory talk around Islam and defensive talk around Islam can become. Now, if, if you are a long-time listener of this podcast and you don't actually know who the hell I'm talking about, then uh, I would say um, crawl out from under your rock, Google Jordan Peterson, maybe start with Wikipedia uh, and then go from there because... Uh, Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy this podcast at all. Anyway, I think there's some things that I've thought about in terms of uh, Peterson that may be worth sharing if you're interested in him and have found value in his book and lectures and podcast, especially if you're kind of amazed that there are any people out there who think he's some kind of right-wing devil whose every word uh, is one of intolerance. And also, um, in case you're one of the people who like what he's read or written and are interested in kind of getting a more... Uh, a wider reading list around him or a listening list. Um, I've had a couple of you actually reach out uh, asking about more things you could listen to or read beyond Peterson. 
and what might be the best context in which to place his values. So why don't we talk a little bit about that stuff and then we'll get into specifically how CSGO and playing CSGO are rendered through the lens of his teachings and philosophies. Yes, we are really going to do that. <laughs> We've done Spinoza on this podcast. We're damn well going to do uh, Peterson. <clears throat> so the first thing I think that's really important to think about uh, is, is, a, is an article I read recently, although it's no, it's no news to any sort of uh, regular proponent or, uh, how do I say it, adherent to the intellectual dark web. But it's this idea that we are in the throes of a war between value systems. Um, and maybe I'll just uh, backtrack a little bit. One of the things that has been happening in my dealings with uh, certain younger women, and this is not just in dates. Uh, I had a workplace maybe a year and a half ago where I was uh, sharing a sort of a, a creative space with some 18, 19, 20-year-old art students. And one of the things that I've noticed is that they have a very different way of valuing uh, things in the world. So for instance, one of the first conversations I got into with this set of girls in this workplace, and I think this anecdote kind of is worth talking about because it it's quite instructive, or at least it was for me. They were going off to a Halloween party and one of them was saying, well, I hope there's not going to be anyone wearing a Native American headdress. And I said, oh, why is that? And they said, well, because that's cultural appropriation. And I said, well... Um, would you be offended by it? They said, no, but someone else there might be. And I asked them to explain why they might be offended. And they said, well, because we're in Australia and Australia is dominated by white men and white men have traditionally oppressed Native American cultures. And I asked them, well, if if there are no white men in the room and you're, uh, this, this young girl was Chinese, I said, if your ancestors did not, do this then do you think that you're responsible to not offend this person she said yes and i said well okay so where does the line of cultural appropriation end and she said well if i grew up chinese i was bullied for being half chinese in australia and when i see someone wearing a traditional chinese dress i get offended because they have not gone through what i've gone through and therefore do not deserve to wear my cultural robes at which point obviously the reducto ad absurdum taught is well you are speaking english therefore you are appropriating uh i think it's nordic and germanic languages <laughs> uh but obviously that's not the most productive thing to say in an argument like that but what it ended up the point we ended up getting to was that she said it was impossible to be racist towards white people and impossible to be misogynistic towards men and so it was clear that we had very different definitions of racism. So I, I pulled up racism in the dictionary and sure enough, her definition of racism was different to what was in the dictionary. So what we were talking about actually were, were, was a new meaning of a word that I was unaware of uh, that she assumed had been culturally accepted and was sort of getting quite offended that I wasn't aware of this. So that was kind of one of the major points and since that meeting with her i've met other young women who believe that it's uh it's quite obvious that we're living in in an oppressive uh patriarchy where men have consistently been in power specifically white men and that it's impossible therefore to be racist towards them and racism is not actually defined by a action or word of um 
discriminatory uh, intent, but uh, <clears throat> a motion towards power from an oppressed to an uh, an oppressor, uh, an oppressor to an oppressed. So, the net result of these discussions that invariably turned emotional, more so for them because they were younger than me and couldn't control their emotions as well, but also for me was that there was a very difficult sort of uh, interruption of what had been quite a friendly exchange and an effrontery on both sides. I was affronted that they just assumed that they could change the meaning of a word despite the fact that it it had meant the same thing for quite some time and assumed that I had agreed to the changing of this meaning. Uh, and on my side, that um, I was affronted that they just assumed that I was some sort of racist bigot purely because of my the way I was born and the way I was educated and the skin, more or less, that I was uh, born in. So there was a big shift. And the way I actually... Uh, have understood this recently has has been much much made much clearer for me and trust me we're gonna get jordan peterson in a moment but it's made been made much clearer for me by uh a book that was that i read i first read about in the atlantic and then quillette and it was basically called basically called it was actually called the rise of victimhood culture microaggressions safe spaces and the new culture wars and this was by bradley campbell and jason manning two professors of sociology And they talked about the idea that there have been three cultures, three types of cultures that we know about. And the first one, or at least one of them what we know about, was honor culture. And in honor culture, reputation had the highest value in a culture, which meant that uh, any sort of slight, be it verbal or physical, required retributive action. And so you got like the feudal system in Japan where someone stole your pig, you could kind of uh, go back and steal two of their pigs. Someone killed your daughter, you can go and kill their wife and their daughter, etc., etc. Now, what came uh, after that was dignity culture, and that was basically arose since the 18th to the 19th century, mostly in the Western world, where everybody is assumed to have a certain level of dignity. And thick skin... In other words, not really caring what people say about you in terms of slights is kind of seen as an asset as opposed to a form of weakness in honor culture. And therefore, in the dignity culture, compromise with an aggrieved party or someone who you know is angry at you was kind of seen as an ideal. And the law was resorted to without shame, a third party, although not necessarily as a first resort. And you can see, uh, bringing it back to CSGO for a second, you can actually see the clash of these cultures in the infamous exchange between Thorin and KNG on Twitter. I've talked about this exchange on Twitter several times in this podcast because it is actually indicative of so much more that's going on right now. Uh, if you're not aware of it, just Google Thorin KNG on Twitter. You can see what happened. What was evident, we're going to come back to this later, but what was evident was that KNG was still somewhat in an honor system which perhaps is a cultural thing in Brazil, I'm not sure. Perhaps it's a thing in KNG's family, I'm not sure. Uh, I suspect it was a former. And Thorin was operating from a dignity, almost victimhood culture, because he kind of suggested that uh, KNG was calling out homosexuals, but mostly a dignity culture. And by assuming that most of his audience were also part of a dignity culture, he really didn't have to say much for KNG to look like he was completely out of date uh, in terms of what his value system was. We'll go back to that later, but I hope it makes sense. Now, there's a third 
uh, value system, um, and I just mentioned it briefly there, into which many of us are basically transitioning. And this is what has been causing these weird conversations with these younger girls, uh, basically this generation beneath me. And this system is called victimhood culture, or at least this is what these two sociologists call it. And it started with universities, uh, who ironically are the most egalitarian places in the Western world. Uh, And the culture of victimhood is basically one where your status as an aggrieved is of the highest importance and the highest value. And the lower it is, um, or, or the lower your status is as an aggrieved, I guess the more aggrieved you are, the more it raises your moral status. So I'm just going to quote from their initial paper that made up the bulk of this book. Public complaints that advertise or even exaggerate one's own victimization and need for sympathy would become anathema to a person of honor, tantamount to showing that one had no honor at all. Members of a dignity culture, on the other hand, would see no shame in appealing to third parties, but they would not approve of such appeals for minor and merely verbal offenses. Instead, they would likely counsel other ignoring other other sorry they would they would likely counsel either confronting the offender directly to discuss the issue or better yet ignoring the remarks altogether now a culture of victimhood is one characterized by concern with status and sensitivity to slight combined with a heavy reliance on third parties people are intolerant of insults even if unintentional and react by bringing them to the attention of authorities or to the public at large Domination is the main form of deviance and victimization a way of attracting sympathy. So rather than emphasize either their strength or inner worth, the aggrieved emphasize their oppression and social marginalization. Naturally, whenever victimhood or honor or anything else confers status, all sorts of people will want to claim it. As clinical psychologist David J. Lay notes, the response of those labeled as oppressors is frequently to assert that they are the victim as well. Thus, you get men criticized as sexist for challenging radical feminism who defend themselves as victims of reverse sexism and people criticized as being unsympathetic proclaim their own history of victimization. In this way, victimhood culture causes a downward spiral of competitive victimhood. Young people on the left and right get sucked into its vortex of grievance and we can expect political polarization to get steadily worse in the coming decades as this moral culture of victimhood spreads. So this is really fascinating to me because my own uh, my own industry actually gives a lot of weight now to the detriment of men's chances, uh, to women's chances and women's grants and women's opportunities. And it's very easy to go, okay, well, I understand the idea behind equality of outcome, but the, the messing with the equality of opportunity at the start is actually a form of discrimination and is actually textbook sexism or misandry. And so the problem is it's very easy to get caught in that, in that cycle as as the sociologist pointed out, that I'm now the aggrieved party and I'm the one being wronged. And yet at the same time, the moment you mentioned that as well, the retort from these young women and this next generation, I mean, it's not just women, but that's who I've heard it from, is that you you have had, or your people have had so many, 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 many decades and centuries of domination that in fact, you, uh, your, your grievance comes from the fact that you just are no longer in power. 
so it's a very confusing place to be in and it's a very tenuous path to tread, especially if you have a, a girlfriend or a spouse who is proclaiming this because having a different value system at its core becomes emotional for both parties. It's not a, it's, it's not a very, it's not a discussion you can have lightly. Let's get back to the idea that you cannot be racist towards a white person because I think that contradiction is inherent to some of the uh, emotions and frustrations that uh, myself and others like me can feel when it comes to discussions with this new value system. And I think the frustration can be boiled down to a hypothetical. Um, so let's say, for instance, that you cannot be racist towards a white person in London, right? Because we've got to get specific. And let's say their ancestors uh, colonized the Bahamas and subjugated the people and settled there with their African-American slaves. Uh, Apart from the fact that the equation of your own sin with that of your ancestors is, is, is similar to a religious person equating your sin with original sin purely because you weren't born into their religion um, is, is insanity. And it's insanity because it, 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 it kind of ignores one basic question. For instance, if I'm a white person and I go to a country where I'm the minority, can I not therefore experience racism there? So I've been to uh, countries where I've had xenophobic remarks and actions taken against me. Um, one of them was Japan. So let's say Japan... Uh, figures into this hypothetical. If you argue that the racism towards me is uh, fine or is still not racism, then <clears throat> then you, you've lost your platform, right? Because historically, uh, white men have been murdered by Japanese on Japanese shores. So let's say that you admit that it's possible to be racist towards a white person in Japan because you are definitely the minority, as I repeated, uh, and you are in no form of power in Japan in any way, unless you look at sort of American uh, control over the Senkaku Islands or Osaka ports or something ridiculous, right? But considering I'm not American, uh, it's a little hard to argue that. But anyway, let's say that you take it as a given. You cannot be racist towards a white person in Japan. So you can be racist towards a white person in Japan which you would hope that you could because it's sensible. So let's imagine that you're traveling from London to Japan in the boat, or I'm traveling from London to Japan in a boat. Now, while the boat is docked in London, anything that a Japanese person says to me, let's say this Japanese person is also on the boat, anything that they say to me in denigration of me as a white person or you know, as a discriminatory remark or action is not racist, right? Because I'm still the majority over there. And I'm part of a, I guess, a race that uh, has traditionally, quote-unquote, subjugated people of minorities, which I guess a Japanese person is in London. Anyway, as the boat travels across to Japan, at what point does it become racist? Does what this Japanese person is saying to me actually become racist? Is it just after halfway or is it when it's docked in Japan? Is it when we've both stepped foot onto Japanese shores? Is it still racist if they send me a racist uh, email, for instance, or a racist letter via mail while I'm still in England? Do you see how it kind of breaks down in its 
sense, basically. And the purpose of the hypothetical is to demonstrate the fact that stripping the right to dignity from white people purely because of their race is as ludicrous as racism itself because whether or not they are the oppressed or the oppressor is completely arbitrary. Now, it makes me think of uh, some of the models I knew growing up who I think I've talked about on this show before because uh, the, when I'm talking about models, I'm talking about like fashion models, right? The ones who are always kind of in danger of really losing their sense of identity and basically on a certain level, their sanity were the ones who really over-identified with what they were being told their main value was based on. And now when you're a model, I think this is, is, is kind of an apt description because when you're a model, like your entire value system, the way you're valued by other people, or at least on a day-to-day basis in your workplace, is purely based on something you really don't have any control over. So you can get good sleep, you can get good exercise, you can eat healthily, you can you know comb your hair or, or whatever, but you really didn't do anything to earn your value in that hierarchy of values that the, the fashion industry uh, abides by so if you actually identify too much with that value and you place too much emphasis on what you've done or haven't done to earn it you actually kind of risk losing a sense of identity full stop and i think this is an important analogy to bring up because this is exactly what these people are doing by treating me like someone completely different purely by an accident of birth they're not only uh, losing their own kind of sense of identity and identity after all is really what you make of yourself rather than what you allow other people to tell you you are. Um, they're also kind of stripping me of a certain identity as well in that in their assumption of who I am and their assumption of my original guilt, there is also a brushing aside of what my identity might be. In other words, what I might have created myself from day dot as a human being so that's kind of one of the main things i have been thinking about and uh it also came up i guess this is probably the last little anecdote i'm going to give in a discussion that i got into with a bunch of you know 20 22 23 24 year olds in a pub one day uh when they told me that films needed more female characters and that the characters in uh, and that Aladdin was a, was a sexist film because there are characters who play concubines who are awarded to Aladdin when he assumes the role as sultan after one of his wishes is granted. Now, despite the fact that I think in this particular film, it's pretty clear that him being a sultan and being uh, in, you know, having power over these concubines is not something he wants. It's not something the, the film condones. It's a pretty basic film. <laughs> it's a Disney film for children. And it's pretty damn clear that this is not a value that it espouses. And yet, because it was represented in this film, it was seen as being sexist and regressive and something that needed to be fixed. Now, I tried to maintain a level head in this discussion, but I didn't really do it very well uh and i think to illustrate my point i'm probably going to have to reveal what it is actually do for a living i'm a screenwriter i write movies so i'm I'm actually involved in the day-to-day like literally day-to-day creation of the stories that these people are unhappy about um and when i revealed this to this group they said well when was the last film you wrote that had strong female characters or passed the bechdel test the bechdel test is the bechdel test it's a something test and it basically is a little test that you do to see 
whether your female roles are 50% um, in, in your film or at least take up sort of somewhat towards half of the main roles in your film, which is kind of difficult if your main role is a guy because they're going to take up most of the lines in your film anyway. Um, so basically they were saying, you know, you need to be doing more. The pendulum needs to be swinging uh, so that women are more represented in stories uh, and narratives. And it gets very difficult when you're talking about what someone personally does for a living because I uh, like to write women's roles. Um, but like a lot of men, I think I'm guilty of writing women's roles or writing w- char- female characters that are more like f- women I want to know as opposed to women I actually know. Um, which I don't really see as, is a bad thing because films are essentially uh, like any sort of art. They're a projection, they're a fantasy, they're a dream that hopefully boils down some essence that connects with you know m- more people than just ourselves. Uh, but this to them was oppressive and was uh, conveying stereotypes. And the main example they went on to use for this was the James Bond films because the women in James Bond films are seen as submissive and completely uh, secondary to the needs of James Bond. Now, this despite the fact uh, that I pointed out that the the overriding image of the, the, the last four or five James Bond films was Daniel Craig getting out of the water with his shirt off. Uh, they still insisted that actually he's the star of these films. He uh, His needs are always primary in the films which I think is a, is, a, is a point that only holds water if there were women out there who were being stopped from writing more women's films, uh, which I, as far as I can tell, there isn't. Um, and I think I really had a bit of an issue with this because like I said, they told me I should be writing more women's films. But when I listed several women's films or several films about women or women with the main character that had come out in the last year they hadn't seen any of them and yet i had that's not because i'm so great it's just because i watch a lot of films for my job um what it really meant was that actually it's not about the women who are writing these films not being uh, thick enough on the ground it's actually the marketing departments of these larger studios who are not marketing the films these girls didn't even know about these films so the problem wasn't with guys <laughs> like me who are you know honest honest blokes just trying to etch out a living <laughs> the problem was with uh the the entrenched marketers now entrenched marketing in large corporations is something i don't really know too much about i worked at a tv station for a long time the ignorance there was astonishing but whether the ignorance there it reaches the levels uh that it might at say universal studios i have no idea it's such a complex argument and to be as reductive as to saying that aladdin is sexist because you want to see more women-centric films despite the fact that obviously aladdin was not condoning the ownership of female slaves was obviously set in a time and place where that was condoned um, and that was part of the fabric of that film and that time and place uh, that's irrelevant. What's what's irrelevant? What 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 recontextualizes it is the fact that these women uh, want to see more films with women in the leads or with more diverse stories. Anyway, it's a very confusing issue. Uh, I hope that gives more context as to why 
I decided to talk about Jordan Peterson, who we are going to get onto. But basically, I think his popularity has arisen out of the friction between these two world values. And I think even that film argument was very much based on a friction between the world values. In my world value, I held that because I'd tried my ass off uh, in terms of writing films um, for a very long time. I had just as much of a right... Um, no, 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 wait. Because of my intrinsic value as a human being, I had just as much right as any woman or anybody for that matter to write a film. But it was actually my merit in terms of writing a film that people wanted to see that would allow my film to be seen, not because of an accident at birth. So uh, that was my, I guess, clash with their values, which was more uh, because there are minorities out there. They therefore deserve more opportunity than you to tell their stories now there's a obviously an argument to be made for the fact that uh, a diversity of stories can have a beneficial effect not only on a culture at large but on the uh, disempowered people in that culture in terms of making them feel more a part of that culture um, so that's part of the friction and I think Peterson has given voice, as I said, to the friction between those cultures. Now, I think the second thing um, I think we should note about this is that just because the victimhood culture is the main sort of media-friendly voice right now, it doesn't mean it's the majority opinion. In other words, there's no need to feel like you're in danger. There's no need to panic. Uh, it's very easy to someone like me, who's 35, who's sort of transitioning into the age that I kind of first knew my parents as parents to feel like because I'm no longer sharing opinions with young people that um, uh, my opinions are in danger of danger of being swamped. But actually that's not really the case. Uh, I think one of the benefits and one of the things that these guys, these sociologists talk about victimhood culture um, and the, the way it spreads so much is because outrage is so inherently spreadable by social media and social media is actually one of the most visible forms of news we have right now now just to clarify that if you look at the algorithms that social media platforms run on they're geared towards engagement right and the more engagement the more engaging things are always either uh what is it outrage or um what's the opposite of outrage like extreme sympathy i forget what it was but if, if, if these things are not kind of generating both of these things, then they're generating less clicks. Therefore, the algorithms that lead you to new content are always prioritizing the most outrageous things. Therefore, victimhood culture, which is far more an outraged, uh, valuing culture, is going to be promoting victimhood over uh, a dignity culture. So that's one thing. Um, just because it's happening on social media doesn't mean it's happening everywhere and the other thing i would say is uh that if you are kind of interested in peterson and you're not quite sure what you know what your place is in terms of what your opinions are even like devon who reached out uh, via email you kind of kind of a little bit nervous that you even have an opinion at all it, what i would say is that you need to re read a bit wider and one of the reasons i, I think I, I don't really feel as i've never really been as um let's how do you say obsessed with peterson um 
and, and, and maybe have stood apart from it a bit more is because when I was at university, I did, uh, as, I, as I mentioned at the start of this, I did um, comparative mythology. Now, comparative mythology, if you're not aware, is the study of religions and myths and, and cultural stories, basically since the dawn of time. Uh, and, and it draws comparisons between all of these and uh, illustrates the, the, kind of the shared values and symbols and stories that men have had despite living ten, tens of thousands of years apart in different parts of the globe. And the, the, kind of the, the book that really kind of started it at least in the in the 19th century, was called The Golden Bow by a guy called James Fraser. He was a an English, uh, I guess you'd classify him as an anthropologist. And his mantle was really taken over by Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell's most famous work was The Hero of a Thousand Faces. He was a Californian professor and writer. And The Hero of a Thousand Faces, if you're not aware of it, is definitely a book I think you should seek out. It has informed a lot of my life, and especially as a screenwriter, actually, and why it was so kind of seminal was that it really did a very, very good job of summarizing all of the world's major religions and mythologies into one story, which, which he labeled the monomyth. And the monomyth you would, have, you would know unconsciously if you don't already know about it because of these stories and films that you've watched growing up. The monomyth uh, is the hero story behind... A lot of your favorite books and films, such as quite famously Star Wars, uh, The Matrix, Harry Potter, and so on. And it basically starts with a, a, a sort of an ordinary person who is living in, in a sort of a, a stasis in their community. And they get a call to adventure um, and they go through a road of trials. They meet a mentor. They go into the belly of the whale. They sort of have a dark night of the soul. They locate some sort of talisman. They vanquish a father figure. They're reunited with a maternal figure. And they return to their community bearing this new talisman or piece of knowledge or whatever it is and, and sort of change their world through the, you know, as a consequence of their journey. And so Campbell basically posited that these various stages that a lot of these myths... Um, went through and one of the ones that obviously Jordan Peterson has glommed onto is is the biblical story the story of Jesus very much follows these templates uh, including the the virgin birth the resurrection all of which basically occur in the monomyth and other uh, social stories and religions quite prominently um, for instance you know um, Hinduism Buddhism uh, Islam uh, Greek mythology, you know, Mesopotamian mythology, etc., etc. So, I think what's good to to know in terms of Joseph Campbell and comparative mythology is that it's not just Christianity, right, or the Bible that has has something to teach you about modern life and individual responsibility. It's basically any mythology that you uh, that has has lasted the test of time um, that has a durable or a durability to its story uh, and the durability of that story and the durability of the hero's journey is one that illustrates the struggle we must all go through to learn to grow and to improve the lives of not only ourselves but the people around us uh, so if you want to read more about uh, if you want to read wider than just say maps of meaning or the, the lectures that Peterson has put on his uh, podcast i would say i would start with hero of a thousand faces 
his ideas about personal responsibility are not just particular to Western Judeo-Christian society. And in fact, um, using the example, uh, the, the country I used as an example earlier, just go to Japan, see how different their culture is, and yet see the emphasis they place on personal responsibility. One interesting anecdote uh, that I remember from early on in art school when I, was, when I was reading about Mad Max, which is the original film written by George Miller, made with Mel Gibson, uh, there was a very interesting story about Joseph Campbell in The Hero of a Thousand Faces. Now, he wrote that film um, never having written a film in his life, never, never even having made one. He was at a surgeon uh, in, in an emergency ward. And he came up with a story about this guy who tries to um, get revenge for these uh, this biker gang who've k- killed his wife and his, and his kid. And he took this film around the world because it was such a success. And what really amazed him was the response it got in different cultures. And one in particular that stood out to me was that when he went to Japan, they saw Mad Max as a samurai figure. Um, and so... It was after a conversation with George Lucas, who'd been using the Hero of a Thousand Faces as a map for Star Wars and specifically New Hope. You can see it basically conforms to the stages of Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces almost to the T, um, that he realized that he'd actually written this monomyth without quite knowing it uh, and hence its popularity around the world. Now, one of the other things I think you should probably read if you're into Joseph Campbell, into, uh, you're into uh, Peterson, is Ayn Rand and actually I think he be- I believe he mentioned Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand on his podcast recently he's often conflated with Ayn Rand because of her emphasis on individuality and I believe he spoke a little bit about why he doesn't believe that's a very good uh, reference to his own work however I think to me, they've always kind of stood in the same field of grass. And if you haven't read Ayn Rand uh, and you've finished university, it's not too late. Uh, it is known as sort of an undergrad book, but definitely get your teeth in. It's a great, uh, it's a great story. Well, Atlas Shrugged is a great story. Uh, the Fountainhead, I think, is even the better one. And they're really enjoyable books, far beyond whatever philosophy she might espouse. And if you take her entire philosophy and entire life as why on why you should or shouldn't read the books then you're basically just saying um you're an idiot and you can't read fiction for its own sake i would say read those books for their own sake especially to young enterprising energized men in university who are feeling some sense of energy and excitement about the world and not we're not quite sure how to place it or what you're interested in they're they're really uh galvanizing books uh, in in the way that they paint a very simplified portrait of a certain mindset that we get, especially when we're young, about the way the world may very well treat us in the future. In that sense, I think they've got very good metaphorical, uh, I don't know, use as as literature. My older brother, who's a bit of a, I wouldn't say he's a social justice warrior, but he definitely veers on the on, on the edge of one. He decries all Ayn Rand because of her supposed uh, anti-charity or anti-altruism message in her books. I never got that from her books. I think there's a case, certainly a case has been made about that. But my message from her stuff was always that if you look after yourself and you give full credence and respect to your own ideas and your own individual potential, 
first off, then you're in the best place possible to help those around you. Uh, and now if I've gotten that wrong with their books, then I've gotten it wrong. Uh, I challenge and I welcome any of you to tell me how I've gotten that wrong. Anyway, uh, that's another way I think you could read about, um, read around Peterson and get some enjoyment out of it and maybe a deeper understanding of where he's coming from. As I said, he doesn't believe that he's necessarily a good comparison to her, but I think she's definitely an antecedent. Um, I think another another advice I would say to people who are interested in Peterson and not quite sure what to think about him and the context in which he's being received right now is to be aware of the egos of the speakers involved. And when I say the speakers, I'm generally talking about the forums in which you see him more or less these days, which are TV interviews and, and TV debates and uh, you know, sit down interviews with GQ and whatnot, um, and I think it's it's worth keeping the ego of him and the people he's debating very much in mind because one of the things that you have to remember about Peterson is that he's a very, 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 very charismatic and good showman who obviously welcomes uh, being interviewed in the public eye, and. You don't welcome being in the public eye unless you you want you you are confident that in some way you're going to come out on top, right? Uh, and I think I mentioned Thorne earlier in this podcast. I think maybe this is one of the reasons I also haven't spoken about in this podcast because the comparison between the two of them is, is actually I don't think it's very flattering, um, and to me it's quite clear. And also, I, I generally try to avoid talking about Thorin the same way I would try to avoid talking about Peterson. They get enough publicity without me weighing in. And I don't have any animosity towards uh, Thorin in any way, shape, or form. I think he's a great uh, content creator and, and a great voice in the scene in, in many ways. Now, where I think this sort of uh, comparison between these two uh, comes from is that both of them at times can do a lot more to explain themselves in ways that would minimize the drama and conflict around them, especially on social media. But often they don't. And anytime I think someone isn't being as clear or as uh, magnanimous as they might be, I think they're acting in bad faith. And for a very clear example, I think we can go back to Thorin's tweet war with KNG that essentially more or less resulted in KNG losing his position uh, out of mortals. Um, this was this was basically a, an example of Thorin baiting KNG into saying something that would incriminate him. Uh, in, in my opinion, at least from the outside, it looked like that. And, and I think Thorin kind of does it quite often. And Thorin has a clear advantage, especially when it comes to debate. He's a very, very good talker, especially over someone like KNG, who isn't a native speaker, who very clearly comes from a different cultural background of Thorin. Now, it's in that case of the tweets and in the case of, I think, several times, Peterson uh, has uh, been interviewed, they've expressed a sort of... Um, ignorance about what the other person might have said that seemed like it was dishonest as in they were really surprised that the person would end up saying something that they said now this is a really effective debating tactic and i'm sure there's a technical term about it that i don't know because you're basically leading someone into stabbing themselves on their own sword the problem with this especially in cases where there's nothing to be gained from a debate other than someone losing their career 
is that it just comes across as feeding that person's own ego. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeding your own ego. The whole reason I'm doing this podcast most likely is to feed my own ego. The whole reason I'm criticizing anybody full stop is to feed my own ego. Uh, But you always got to consider it when you think about the points that people are making and why they're making it. And sometimes even just making someone look stupid for no good reason at all, uh, I think is an indicator that you have to take what they're saying in their opinions with a grain of salt. I think um, the clearest example of this with Jordan Peterson uh, is his refusal to give a really straight answer and, and especially a consistent answer on whether or not he would use someone's preferred pronouns if they asked him um, to do so. Because this, the way he kind of answered this stirred up way more drama than was necessary um, when in actual fact whether or not he'd use someone's pronouns was not the issue. Uh, if you recall the whole reason he sort of became famous regarding the, the Canada free speech laws, if you don't look it up. Um, and that was not even sort of the issue. The issue was free speech. It wasn't whether or not he would specifically in person use someone's pronouns. And when asked uh, about that, if this person actually asked him face to face, he was quite, uh, he was a lot more evasive than he needed to be. He didn't just say, well, it depends on whether I like the person or not and believe that they were actually, uh, you know, being honest about it or, or taking the piss. And I think he, I think it's quite easy to tell in a lot of his interviews. And look, this is speculation. I actually know. I think he's inviting a lot more uh, opprobrium and emotion from the other person than is probably necessary. And that makes the uh, talk more tense and it makes him come off as far more rational. And actually, in a way as well, the victim or the less oppressive in that instance anyway uh what i think i think it's perfectly possible to argue with as much knowledge and erudition as jordan peterson and thorin do on a regular basis while also having a generosity of spirit that allows elasticity for misunderstanding and i you know one of the things that's interesting is that it's pretty clear that the intellectual dark web and people like thorin uh and, and a lot of people i guess around about my age who are into peterson have kind of migrated from the Christopher Hitchens school of rhetoric now one of the signs I think for this is that they use terms like straw man uh, fairly often it's an indication that they've perhaps like me gone from Hitchens to the four horsemen of the apocalypse to Sam Harris to maybe Joe Rogan I personally skipped him because I'm not so big on his uh, enthusiasm for weed um, and then ended up on Jordan Peterson. But Christopher Hitchens, who was basically the first guy to sort of be uh, branded with the moniker on these YouTube videos that he was destroying people in online debates. It was always Christopher Hitchens destroys uh, a Catholic. You know, Hitchens uh, decimates an innocent you know, uh, Muslim woman or uh, embarrasses or ridicules a, a fervent, you know, uh, Mormon fanatic. Um, I think it was through admiration for him that, that that many of us kind of got onto Sam Harris and from there onto people like uh, Peterson and, and for others probably as far as Ben Shapiro and that. But he's definitely someone who had a far more generous spirit in his debates than people like Jordan Peterson. And that's probably perhaps why he didn't cross over into the culture as much or maybe it was just a cultural timing thing, I'm not sure. But if, you, if you're if you interested in Peterson and you don't know Christopher Hitchens too well, 
Google him and his debates online. Not only was he uh, far more erudite than Peterson, um, especially because I guess he'd written a lot of books on a lot wider subjects, um, but I think he was a lot more generous with what he allowed the... Uh, with the dignity that he allowed the other person and specifically and i think you can see this in sam harris's stuff he was quite often outlining the case for the other speaker in ways that they were failing to do which is not only a very generous thing to do but it it also is a mark of someone who's (laughs) his intellect is is far superior to the person they're debating because not only can they go right you can't really get across the side of your debate or let me tell you what your side of the debate is in a much better way than you can and not only will i do that then i'll turn around and destroy it so if you're looking for some more wider watching and reading check out christopher hitchens stuff letters from a young contrarian is definitely the book to start with if you're interested in reading that and obviously his debates online are, are great um not only a great continuation of the sort of intellectual debates that you may have just gotten into via watching Peterson, but also, I think, uh, of a higher caliber in terms of their intellectual honesty, which, of course, is yet another term <laughs> that came out of the intellectual dark web. God damn it. I'm one of those, one of those people. Now, I think um, what was interesting, too, this is just a kind of an anecdote apropos of not much at all, but it's it's just in my notes and it's probably not where it should be. But I did have lunch the other day with a, a, a friend of mine who she just turned 40 and we were involved in a television show about 12 years ago. She was an actress and I think just before we met or maybe just after we met, she had an experience where she was called in to audition for Steven Seagal and he asked her to meet in a hotel room and she went up to the hotel room and he, I think he said, I can't remember what exactly he said, but it was something along the lines of either get naked or suck my dick or you are going to be my girlfriend during the making of this film or we're going to have sex uh, just so you're okay. And she went, no, thanks. That's not going to happen and walked out. And the way this manifested itself in her life, as far as I can tell, was that she was kind of creeped out by it, but told enough of her friends that she trusted uh, that she got to the point where she could really laugh about it and laugh about how seedy he was and how weird his hairpiece was and how gross it was. Um, that it didn't really mean anything to her. In other words, she sort of became a uh, less of a victim and more of a, a fighter or a coper. Um, and what was interesting was that she kind of exercised her right not to stay in the room, let alone be in the movie that he was casting. And that was kind of that. Now, if there were more people like her no one would have taken Seagal up on his offer to be in the film. He never would have made the film. Um, And so the power, therefore, did not lie with Seagal. The power lay with the women who were going to the casting. And yet at the same time, you can say that the women who were going to the casting were simply responding to economic demands and that actually because the economic uh, payout afforded by this film was so great, in some circumstances, they probably did not have a choice. And so this is where the uh, Me Too movement, uh, the idea of sexual assault becomes far more blurred than I'm sort of capable of working out or even really on a basic level having much of an opinion about. 
And this is another reason I think uh, Peterson uh, maybe appeals because he's lending a very uh, strong voice to the idea that we're individually responsible. And it's very easy to look at a scenario like the one my friend was in and go, well, individually, you have a very clear choice to make, which you know, either aligns with your values or it doesn't. And if it aligns with your values and your values are you know, dignity <laughs> in a certain sense, then you get out of there. And if it doesn't, uh, then you make the wrong choice. Um, as I said, that's kind of apropos of not much at all, but that was another thing that I thought confuses the hell out of me. Anyhow, back to Peterson. I think if you are interested in doing his self-authoring course, there are definitely worse things you can do. (laughs) What it does is supplement, and in some cases, I'm sure, replace essentially therapy. And if you don't know what it is, it's it's an online questionnaire where you you complete a, 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 a bunch of questions about your past and things that had a profound impact upon you and your value system and the way you think in your past. Then you examine what you're doing uh, and your actions in the present and the main things that you're uh, doing that may be uh, harmful to you or uh, are not in line with what you value and the main things that you're doing that are in line with what you value. And then in the future, you kind of, uh, in the, f- the future program, you basically write a bunch of things that you want to do and the steps that you can take to get them and the things that you don't want to do and the things that you want to avoid doing so that you won't do them. Uh, I think this is a very valuable thing to do. I think it is something you can do or you, you might have done naturally by having a very vocal group of friends. Uh, but if you haven't done it, I would recommend doing it. Personally, I did it while I was doing therapy. And I found it uh, as valuable, if not more valuable than the times when I've been quite introspective anyway and have been journaling. It's good in that it helps you organize the way you might journal uh, and it forces you to clean up your head (laughs) in a way that maybe is very analogous to cleaning up your room. Um, in my case, there'd been certain issues that I just hadn't brought up with my therapist because I didn't think they were kind of worthy of talking about. They were so far in the past. But yet when I brought them up in my self-authoring program, of course, just to myself, I realized that I I wasn't quite sure how to categorize them. And one of the things that it does is help you make sense of what they might have meant in your life thus far and what effect they had on your life. And in doing so, it's basically like putting a little label on on it and putting it in a drawer and maybe putting a label in that drawer. And so essentially every time you go back into your head, it's like a clean room. You know what this certain memory means. You know what effect it had in your life. You know how you feel about it. Uh, there's less ambiguity and you can kind of concentrate more on the present and or the future. So that was incredibly valuable uh, and, and a great adjunct to therapy because therapy was much more useful, uh, at least in my experience, for talking about uh, things that were going on in the present, making sense of them in the present and, and making sense of them going forward. And then in some cases, the the bigger things that had happened in my past that I really had no idea uh, of how to categorize. I didn't even have the language to sort of categorize uh, things that might have happened to me. So I would definitely say uh, try that. Um, and that's probably all I really have to say about Jordan Peterson at this point in time, other than CSGO.
let's get on to CSGO and Jordan Peterson. The whole, <laughs> the whole point of this bloody episode. Now, it's quite clear that playing Counter-Strike Global Offensive for any length of time beyond what it takes to relax is incompatible with the teachings of Jordan B. Peterson and the philosophies he espouses. Um, and I, I said this bar two circumstances, right? And the one circumstance is that you are a pro, pro player um, or you are otherwise involved in a way that playing it brings uh, monetary value. Um, now, I would say, just to kind of clarify that, I think, uh, well, let me just explain it a bit more. Like, for all intents and purposes, Counter-Strike is obviously a simulation, right? It's a simulation of how good your reflexes are, first and foremost. So it gives us a dopamine hit because we get satisfaction from thinking or feeling like we've accomplished something in the world. We're testing our reflexes and coming out a victor, right? First and foremost, it's reflexes, which is a, which is actually a fairly useless test in today's world. There's very little uh, that our reflexes, our physical reflexes actually do for us. Um, and, and, and like Formula One, in fact, uh, Counter-Strike is, is definitely not a, a, a game of physical health, where physical health is paramount. In fact, like Formula One, it's it's the mental state that is far more paramount to the success of CSGO players. Uh, and we might talk about that at the end of this, or we might just talk about another episode. Um, but the other test that goes on uh, in Counter-Strike is uh, the test of your tactics and instincts for warfare. Um, and that's also a fairly useless tactic unless perhaps you're, you're going into the army and some form of infantry. Uh, but finally, the thing it tests is how good your communication skills are. And this actually, I think, is in fact the best thing about Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Um, you see threads about it occasionally on Reddit, but I don't think you see enough about it, probably because we don't, we're don't, we not privy to most of what pro players say. Um, but I think it's really the major, in fact, possibly the only valuable thing about playing Counter-Strike. And I would say if you're playing Counter-Strike regularly and you're frustrated because you can't rank up due to your stagnating aim or your stagnating game sense, I would look at your comms uh, and the level of your comms. And if the level of your comms are really good, um, well, if they're not good, for starters, concentrate on them. Put put most of your effort into them because then you're actually putting your effort into a skill that, that might translate into your day-to-day life. And if you're not sure how to uh, put most of your effort into uh, your comms, first off, I would say find someone you can play with. That doesn't necessarily mean someone who you can be best buddies with. It means someone you get along with, you can queue with, who you can who you can go into bomb sites with, and actually uh, like talk with and tell them what you're doing and have them tell you what they're doing. Right, and make that the first step to getting better at your comms. Um, <clears throat> if they're good, then I would say stop playing the game. I would say if your comms are at a high level in Counter-Strike and you're not a pro player and you're never going to turn this into a career, stop playing the game. And by a high level, I mean maybe you've got three or four friends you regularly play with. You guys have really good communications. Um, and I, I should caveat this. If you, if you play one hour a week or two hours a week, on the weekend and it's a really fun way to connect with your friends who are overseas and there's some other uh, sort of value that you get out of it that I'm not covering or that's not simply a result of improvement, then fine. But if you play it more than that, 
and it goes beyond relaxation and your comms are great, stop playing because I think you've gotten basically everything out of this game that is applicable to real life. And the real life gains are really the only ones that are actually important. Um, I don't think uh, there's a whole lot more to add about CSGO and Jordan Peterson (laughs) than that. Uh, Take responsibility for yourself. Do something with your life take on the responsibility of fulfilling your potential and using your time in its best way possible and i'm going to leave you with just one last recommendation it's it's come out of my research around this idea of what astralis are doing currently um why they just won yet another tournament um, and how they could be applying this idea of a holistic uh, excellence practice uh, to their life. And there's this guy called Aki Hintzer who died, I think it was last year or the year before. Aki Hintzer was the doctor for the McLaren Formula 1 team for a long time. He started out as a doctor in Ethiopia and worked alongside some of the world's fastest runners. Hintzer wrote a book called The Core... And it was based around his principles of health and, I guess, excellence. But mainly just like life fulfillment. And the core was based around three questions that he would ask each of his patients when he, when he was assigned to them. Uh, and not obviously someone who just came in with, a, with a, you know, like a sore foot, but patients who he worked with for a long time or clients who he worked with for a long time. For instance, like a Formula One driver for two years. The three questions he would ask is, do you know who you are? Do you know what you want? And are you in control of your life? Do you know what you want? Uh, Do you know who you are? Do you know what you want? And are you in control of your life? And they're very good questions, I think, to start with if you, let's say maybe you haven't gotten through your 12 rules for life. Maybe you can't listen to the podcasts. Maybe you tried to start the self-authoring guide and got a bit bogged down by trying to remember things, trying to complete things and trying to reach the 1,000 words or whatever, or just found you couldn't focus. Start with these questions and look at the way you're spending the time in your day. And I guarantee you, unless you're trying to become a CSGO pro, there's a very small chance that CSGO will figure into the values that arise from answering those questions. So this book is actually available online. It's called The Core. You can buy it through Google Books. It's very expensive if you try to order a hard copy on Amazon or whatnot, but you can buy it, I think, for about $13 on Google Books. Uh, so if you've got an Android, you can read it anywhere. And if you've got Chrome, you can just read it through the browser. Everything that he talked about is what we're seeing What we're seeing uh, Australis focus on. A circle of better life, he calls it, focusing on physical activity, nutrition, sleep and recovery, biomechanics, mental energy, and general health, all sort of guided by this core of essentially a self-knowledge and an adherence to the values that you really deeply believe in. So maybe we'll talk about that in more depth at a later stage. For the meantime, that's basically it for this podcast. I think next week we are hoping, or next episode, hoping to have an interview with uh, Schneider. Schneider, of course, is a Swedish player best known for playing on Fnatic in 2013, later on Godsent for, I think, about 19 months. 
and having some ignominious ejections from said teams at certain times. He's been through ups and downs. He had a tweet longer recently about the severe depression that he went through and how he's been trying to fight back from the uh, uh, said downs. Uh, trying to tee up an interview with him right now. None of the boys from Renegades got back to me, so it appears we won't have an Australian interview anytime soon. And it looks like I'm going to be missing IEM Sydney this year because of work. I'm hoping to get Max Mellett uh, under the truth banner, asking some tough questions, some of the more uh, gravelly quiznatches for some of the players over there. Uh, if that doesn't happen, we'll make sure there's some sort of presence. In the meantime, you can contact me, the truth at thetruthcsgo.com, on Twitter at thetruthcsgo. We've got a Discord up there as well. And uh, what else we got? Music was by Beaufort. We're affiliated with CSGO2Asia. I'm not sure if those guys even listen to this podcast anymore or even posting it up there, but look, I'm going to be loyal. Josh occasionally does the news. <laughs> I think he's concentrating on studies once again this week. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to get in touch. And in the meantime, I hope I haven't uh, prevented you from enjoying the game. So enjoy the game.